hello, and welcome into another episode of Popcorn for Breakfast with your co-host, Kirk. Hello, hello. I am your other co-host, Cam. We are coming to you, uh, we're recording this on a Thursday night, which has been a while since we've done anything on a Thursday night. This is Thursday, July 29th. Um, We are not on the stream. We're just giving you a one big giant episode and we're going to try to make it quick make it fun get you everything you need to know in and out boom done uh, because we if anybody watched the catastrophic stream on tuesday night i i apologize for that um unless you are like one of those people who loves like really cringy stuff um in which case <laughs> you're welcome i guess uh, <laughs> because or you like you've been watching from the from the shadows and you are you are so excited to see us take some missteps. You yeah, look at them fail. Right. Look at them. Yeah, yeah. You just like some good old fashioned Schadenfreude. Like you hate <laughs> us and you just want to watch us fail. Like, I yeah. mean, in that case, you're welcome because Tuesday night was a disaster. In fact, um, I haven't even deleted the stream from YouTube or 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 Facebook or Twitch. So if you want to go watch it, by all means, it's it's awful. It's basically just. 30 minutes of me scrambling to try to talk about every news story by myself. And then like periodically us like checking Kirk sound live on the stream (laughs) because it wasn't working. Um, But here's what I said right after that. I said, you know, we've done this, we've been doing streaming for a while now and we've been doing uh, remote recording for a long while, you know, since really since a few months into the pandemic and mm-hmm. that was our first like really major technical hiccup. So I'll take that, you know, like I- I'll buy that for sure. That's right. We may have, uh, we definitely have one forgotten episode. Yes. That I don't one even remember lost what episode. movie it was. I've, I've suppressed it so hard. And then that, and that's about it. Yeah. Uh, of course. And then of course the very first time we recorded, we had to re-record <laughs> and we just mimicked everything we did. Yes. All the same, all the same jokes, all the banter. We just (laughs) ran it all back (laughs) and they landed better the second time. Actually, I feel like so they did. They really did. Uh, And you'll never know any better because the first one we forgot to hit record properly. (laughs) That's right. So I will take that. We've been doing this for for over two years now. So that's really not a bad track record. No. So imagine in like 30 years when we are the uh, the king of the podcasts. Yeah. Uh, we'll only have like five missteps. That's at that right. Point. At, that, so at, that, at this pace, I think that's that's pretty good. Um, but yeah, we're coming to you on a Thursday night. Uh, like I said, it is storming violently outside my house. So hopefully my my noise gate does its job and keeps those low frequency thunder rumbles out of your ears. Let's hope. Um, but we'll do our best. We are going to talk about movie news because there's a ton of movie and TV news and it just keeps coming. Kirk it's just it's just raining down on us uh like the rain outside right now and so we got to talk about that um we are reviewing not one not two but three movies for you and that is the fear street trilogy we're reviewing the fear street trilogy which is of course the wildly popular uh horror trilogy on netflix based on the rl stein series fear street though i think the books are very different from the movies they kind of just like took the name and the essence and turned it into movies. Of course, also R.L. Stein is a is a young adult author, and these mm-hmm. were R-rated 
slasher gore fest. So it was, yes, it's just a little bit of a different vibe. Were. Yeah. We'll talk about that. <laughs> we definitely will. We definitely will. So that's exciting. Excited to talk about Fear Street. And then we, I think I said when we did the stream on Tuesday, the theme of the episode is, as Matthew McConaughey once said in True Detective, that time is a flat circle. Everything yes. that has happened will continue to happen over and over again. And that's evidenced by some of our news this week. That's evidenced by the fact that Benifer is back. Ben Affleck and J-Lo are now Instagram official. Uh, J-Lo <laughs> announced it on her 52nd birthday. Happy birthday, J-Lo. Belated. Yes. Um, we're going to talk about best celebrity couples, and we're going to give our schoolyard picks. It's going to be... It's going to be hot. It's going to be intense. Uh, we don't really like dabble in the Hollywood gossip very often, so we've got a lot of uh, pent-up opinions and hot takes here. So I think it's going to be good. It's going to be good. But with all of that said, I think we'd better get started, Kirk, because I, I just explained a lot of stuff. We've got a lot of stuff to cover. What do you think? Let's just blow through all of this. I'm Let's ready. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's pop it up. A little late on the draw there. <laughs> That's all right. We're, we're working through it on Thursday night. Um, okay, first one up is kind of a bummer, but I want to start with it because I want to make sure that everybody is sending all the good energy, all the prayers, everything they can in the direction of Bob Odenkirk. If you guys hadn't heard, Bob Odenkirk, who of course is the star of uh, Better Call Saul on AMC, uh, suffered what they're calling a heart-related incident. Um, there were a few outlets calling it a heart attack, um, this happened on Tuesday night, but they've since rolled that back and they're calling it a heart-related incident. And he has been hospitalized. Um, he actually, the incident occurred while he was, while they were filming Better Call Saul. Like it occurred on set. So that's obviously a very scary situation for all involved. He was hospitalized on Tuesday night. Last, uh, last night, Wednesday night, they announced that he is in stable condition. Um, and his son, Nate Odenkirk, tweeted out, and I'm quoting, he's going to be all right. He's going to be all right. Um, so that is great to hear. We obviously wish only the best for Bob Odenkirk and his wife, Naomi, their whole family, friends, fans, everybody. We, we want to make sure that that goes okay. But it sounds like uh, sounds like Bob Odenkirk could be on the mend. But we just want to keep sending all our positive thoughts his way. Definitely. I, I just see, you know, Bob Odenkirk, his career goes back so far. It's it's pretty incredible, like all the way yeah. back to a writer on SNL mm -hmm. uh, at the same time as Conan O'Brien, like back in the in the 80s. It's absolutely incredible. His career, it, it's longer than you could imagine. Um, we often think of him as like popping up in cameos in like The Office sure. uh, when he was like the alternate Michael Scott, when he also auditioned for the original role of Michael Scott. Like, his career path, I don't want to sound like we're like uh, putting an end or a period to his career, but I just want to say like, he's so important in the, yeah. in the entertainment industry and so many people have met him and he's got a great reputation and I can only imagine that he was in an absolutely incredibly um, focused scene that he was so committed and that show is so stressful that life imitated art and he just had his 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 body, his body couldn't take it that's what it seems like yeah i mean that, it wouldn't be surprising to hear that about bob odenkirk i think one of those things yeah this is a guy who's been even still now that he's getting the critical accolades and things like that is still vastly underrated i think top five most underrated performers in hollywood bar none <laughs> um and 
it's one of those things where he's always been good. You know, if you go back and watch his old stuff, he's always been good. It just took time for it to catch up to him. And so he's seen as sort of like a late bloomer. You know, now he's an action hero and nobody. And he's yes. stealing the show and Better Call Saul. I mean, he was in Nebraska. He was great in that movie. He's been in tons of different things. Um, a fantastic performer. Like you said, great reputation. Nobody has a bad thing to say about this guy at all. And so uh, we just wish him the best and, and a speedy recovery and, and hopefully things go well there, which it sounds like things are headed in the right direction. So that is a, um, a huge sigh of relief. Yes. Come back to us, Bob. Come That's back. Right. Come back. All right. Moving along. This one is hot off the presses today. And this one knocks my socks off. ScarJo is suing the mouse. She is suing Disney for breach of contract on Black Widow. What she and her attorneys are alleging is that when Disney made the decision to put Black Widow on Disney Plus Premier Access, um, they breached her contract in which she and her attorneys claimed there was a clause about being promised an exclusively theatrical release. Um, and, And the reason that's important to her is because there's some profit sharing going on with her films, which is not uncommon. Big stars get these kind of deals all the time. If we make X dollars in the box office, you get X percentage. So notoriously, Black Widow had an incredible first weekend and then fell off a cliff in box office numbers, um, which is largely speculated to be due to the Disney Plus premiere access and the fact that because it was on digital, it was the number one torrented movie over the last month too. People were getting illegal copies of it. Um, So ScarJo's after Disney. Disney quickly clapped back because you know they have expensive attorneys. And uh, what does Omar say in The Wire? If you come out the king, you best not miss. Is that what he says? That that sounds right. That's right. (laughs) Well, (laughs) Disney is swinging hard. And in, in their comment, they said there's no merit whatsoever to this filing. They said it's sad and distressing in its callous disregard for the horrific and prolonged global effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. And they said that they have fully complied with Scarlett Johansson's contract. And furthermore, the release of Black Widow on Disney Plus with Premier Access has significantly enhanced her ability to earn additional compensation on top of the 20 million she has received to date. So they're saying, hey, you're not losing money by the Premier Access. In fact, you get you can still earn money from that. So um Yikes. This is, I mean, Disney dropped the mic on their reply, but we'll find out how this goes. Kirk, what's your reaction to this news? Were you surprised? A couple of things, a couple of things. Strictly uh, strictly with the verbiage of ScarJo is suing the mouse, I just get this incredible sketch in my mind of Scarlett Johansson walking into a courtroom with Mickey Mouse being the <laughs> the defendant or the, the plaintiff, yeah. and she's just going at him, just like ripping him, and he's just standing there like, oh, I'm sorry, you're not, I'm not very good with this, <laughs> yeah. come on. That's what I imagine with this first and Which foremost. makes her seem pretty heartless if you if you view it that way, but... Exactly. But then as the court case goes on, Mickey starts to unveil some secrets like, oh, yes, but I have to pay for my gambling addiction, you see, and I'm not going to go back on this contract. Because as you listen to the the contract, the words from the lawyers is that everything was upheld on the contract. Mm -hmm. Well, of course it was. She got all the money from the box office, but there's all these different caveats that weren't in play before COVID that should have been uh, like an addendum to the the contract. Right. So 
that's nuts. Uh, and of course, if, if at any point during that courtroom scene that we could see Omar roll in <laughs> and just <laughs> Omar destroy coming. everyone. <laughs> Omar coming. Yeah. Man, I have to say, this is interesting. I, I would certainly, regardless of how much money I had, I think I would think twice before suing Disney because you know yeah. they have corporate lo- lawyers out the wazoo and probably some of the best in the entire biz. Um, but the reason I phrased it as the mouse is because whenever I think of that, I, I, th- I see like a dark silhouette of like, you know, the Godfather turning around in the chair <laughs> type of thing. That's that's what I always kind of envision. Something more imposing. Okay, um, okay. I like this. I like this. But it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see how it pans out. I don't know who's in the right. I obviously don't know enough about the whole situation. And and certainly, you know, if she feels that she was entitled to more money than, than all the power to her, I think we tend to side with actors more so than studios because they have comparably Phoenix. less money and they're real people versus a corporation, uh, you know, full of real people, but still a corporation. So yeah, I, I it's think interesting. She- I don't know. At a, at a glance, it sounds like she may have pulled the trigger too quickly. However, you know, Disney lawyers are probably really crafty uh, in how they say that she's been compensated well through the other avenues. Mm-hmm. So that part will be interesting as this plays out. Yes. Um, but I'm also worried for her because if Disney decides to bury her, which they could just give her her lawyers litigation after litigation, then what are her and Colin Jost and baby ScarJo Jost going to do? I don't know what what's becoming of their family then. I'm surprised that this actually made it to a lawsuit filing. I'm surprised this wasn't brought up like letter to the Disney attorneys. They have a conversation about it. They work it out because, and I don't want to go on on this forever, but it is interesting. People who work with Marvel as actors have nothing but good things to say about the relationship with the studio, the process of working with them, the freedom they have while recording, the way they're compensated. I mean, they rave about it. People love it. People want to work for Marvel. So this is an interesting turning point. And also it's worth noting that like Scarlett Johansson's not retiring anytime soon. And Disney's no. more than just Marvel. And in fact, she's slated to executive produce a Tower of Terror movie. We talked about that on the podcast a few weeks ago. Where does that go? She just right. sued. She just sued the company that's supposed to produce that movie with her. Um, this is a very interesting story to keep an eye on for sure. Yes. Yeah, so we'll we'll keep you guys posted on that, but uh, there's there's trouble trouble at the castle, man. We'll we'll see we'll see what happens uh, with ScarJo, and we'll keep you guys posted. I also love that imagery of Mickey Mouse turning around in a chair in a, in a dark <laughs> yeah. den. He's got a cigar hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> I'm gonna make him an offer I can't refuse. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right. We got a ton of other big stories to go through, so let's let's fly through these. The okay. big one that we we were going to lead off with on Tuesday was that NBC Universal has purchased an Exorcist trilogy. This is, you know, the Exorcist, the original trilogy. This is an extension of that. This isn't a remake. This isn't a reboot. It's more of like a sequel onto that. And we know there have been multiple sequels that were of lesser quality than the original, The Exorcist, for sure. But what makes this different is, first of all, NBC Universal is backing in the Brinks truck. They're paying $400 million for this franchise. It is going to be three films, at least, and they are planning on doing at least a theatrical release for the first one, but then also bringing these properties to Peacock. Now, whether the sequels will be Peacock exclusives or what have you, we don't really know yet, but the plan is that these will be films. They will be potentially theatrical and peacock or one and then the other we'll we'll figure it out but 
They are bringing back Ellen Burstyn, who is the Academy Award-winning actor from the original film, who won for her role in that film, and then didn't return for any of the sequels. She's back. And they're bringing new into the franchise Leslie Odom Jr., Academy Award nominee and star of Hamilton and One Night in Miami. So this is a substantial investment, one of the most significant investments that we've seen be made into Peacock, you know, since since it's all started. So, and we know that horror, I mean, I, I shouldn't say we know. I, I feel like horror is trending up in terms of popularity as a genre, but I want to get your thoughts on this, Kirk, or what are your thoughts on this exorcist? Do you think this will be good for them? It will be a good investment, or do you think the jury's still out? I think they have they must have such confidence in the story and the structure of telling it in multiple parts again that it has to be good because that's too much of a risk to not have absolutely everyone on board with this uh, so they've got some sort of secret that that we don't know about they've they've calculated um they're, they're pulling nostalgia and some new twist and they're putting it all together that I think is going to really blow our minds. Um, and Leslie Odom Jr., man, congratulations. He is just continuing to rise and rise and rise in the film world. So uh, big kudos to him. And to see Ellen Burstyn back on the screen in, in this role, or at least some kind of role, that'll be fascinating to see as well. Yeah, for sure. Also worth noting that uh, this the agency that negotiated this deal uh, is the same agency, it's called Creative Artists, and the, and the actual agent is named Brian Lord, is the same agency that negotiated the Knives Out deal with with uh, with Netflix. Whoa. So this guy, all he does is scoop in big loads of money uh, for, <laughs> for franchises that are existing. So shout out to them. Leslie Odom Jr., unlikely circumstance, he's involved in both of those projects. So there's certainly some synergies going on there. I'd also um, like to point out that Ellen Burstyn is 89 years, or yeah. will be 89 years old in 2021. That is yes. insane. Yes. And bravo to her. That's right. awesome. That's just awesome. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting to watch, but I, I feel like this is a good investment. I feel like horror is the place to be. The Exorcist is one of the most fondly looked upon horror movies of all time. The original is a great movie and terrifying to this day. And, uh, yeah, this is one to watch. It'll be very interesting. Yes. Um, very, very interesting. Speaking of things that are interesting, Kirk, I think somebody's picked up your dream journal. And here's why I say that, because, what? you know, Michael B. Jordan, I think he he appears in your dream journal quite regularly since you are a huge fan. And yes. Superman, your all-time favorite superhero. There is a Michael B. Jordan Superman project coming to HBO Max. And this is something that has been in the works for years. We first, uh, I shouldn't say reported it, but we first shared an article about it from 2019 that said that Michael B. Jordan had approached uh, Warner with this idea and that scheduling conflicts and things got in the way and it didn't work out. Then we got the story earlier this year that J.J. Abrams was producing a Superman film uh, with Ta-Nehisi Coates coming on to write and it was suspected to be a black Superman project. So we thought, oh man, the Michael B. Jordan thing is dead. Not so fast. This project has been greenlit. It's moving forward. It's going to HBO Max exclusively. And we don't know if it's a limited series or a film yet at this point. People are speculating limited series, but that's what we know so far. Kirk, oh my the floor is yours. I got to have your reaction. 
Oh my goodness, I don't even know where to begin. This is this is 100% in my dream journal. I think this is a weekly basis yeah. of Michael B. Jordan. Um, I, I'm speechless. This is this is a dream come true. I would prefer it actually as a limited series. Oh um, yeah. A la Watchmen, you know? Yeah, sure. I feel like they could get into this, this version of Superman because I believe it would be in an alternate reality from the little buzzes that I've, that I've read about. I think you really need to give him time to grow. You can't just like throw him in. And if we did just an origin story of it, just as a a film alone, I don't think we'd have enough time because our idea and, and the general consensus that everyone knows who Superman is pretty much by the time you're one, you know what, who Superman is. It's just so iconic, but in order to reteach people what this would look like and show them how cool this story is and could be, I think we need that limited series dropped on us and give give Michael B. Jordan uh, time to shine. He's mostly in films. We haven't had him in a lot of episodic roles. We had it in er, very early in his career. He would did I believe he was in Parenthood for a little bit, possibly. Um, I know he was in Lie to Me, so he did he did have that. But this that would be extra special if we could get him on. A TVMA limited series Superman show. I would love that. Now, we do have to pump the brakes slightly on him starring in it because that has not been confirmed, though it has been heavily speculated that he would not be involved in this unless he got a chance to star in it. Um, As Kirk alluded to, this would focus on a Superman character called Val Zod, which is basically a multiverse Superman who is from Earth 2, so a different Earth. He is also a Kryptonian. He is also, you know, one of the survivors of Krypton exploding and one of the ones that is taking over the mantle of Superman. So very similar story, different character, and we can only cross our fingers and hope and pray that Michael B. actually suits up for this one. Listen, he's not suiting up for Static Shock. He's just producing that. So That's this true. is his chance. He was a villain in Marvel. Now yes. he needs to be a superhero in DC. Come on. Yeah, it would be great. It would be so great. So we'll, we will definitely be keeping tabs on that one for you guys. On the topic of HBO Max, Warner did announce that they will be developing at least 10 films exclusively for HBO Max in 2022. And that's coming to us via Variety. Just to catch up, the story on The Exorcist was from Deadline. And Collider is the one who exclusively learned about the Michael B. Jordan Superman project. So just catching up on credit there. But... Variety is reporting 10 films exclusively for HBO Max coming from Warner. Um, My thoughts on this is this is a great move. I think they know that they need to drive subscribers to HBO Max. They had a good quarter, 2.8 million new subscribers in Q2. Um, So they're well on their way. I think, you know, their current plan is working, but it's going to take original content, exclusive content to drive people there. And uh, that's what Netflix is doing. That's what Prime is doing. Um, it's the right move. I think, and I think films are the right move too, honestly. And I also think maybe just keep it at 10 films. You know what I mean? Because Netflix has been having a lot of chatter recently about how they don't feel like their content has staying power, that um, they're concerned about the fact that their films and shows don't stay in the conversation for long enough. And I think Netflix is issue if you can call it an issue this is a minor issue but if they have any problem i think it might be the volume of content because there's so much coming out so many netflix original movies so maybe that's the reason they don't stay in the conversation is because it's like well on to the next one (laughs) you know (laughs) we talk about this one for this weekend but next weekend there's you know fear street part two or whatever and you have to shift gears so maybe that could be part of the issue 
It's true. It's true. It's kind of like, you know, back back in the olden days <laughs> when there was only television and no streaming, that's what you had. And everyone everyone had the same access to everything. Well, now the 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 volume of content is out of this world. So you, you might have a number one hit show like, uh, let's say, Shit's Creek, yeah. which I still have not finished because there's there's not enough time to get to everything oh, I, I want to. There so I am I'm still behind on that and someone might go crazy, but then I'll meet someone who hasn't watched Breaking Bad in 2021 right. <laughs> and that blows my mind, right? So yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's a very real issue for for Netflix, but they're also king of the castle, so we'll see yeah, how that plays sure. out. And speaking of the king of the castle, I got all the segues today. We got two Netflix stories back to back for you right now. Um, Netflix is working with the showrunner of Lucifer, Joe Henderson, to produce a live-action Pokemon series. And this is coming from Variety. This would be an extension of what I would consider an already significant uh, presence in the Pokemon, uh, a pretty significant Pokemon footprint on Netflix because they've got the original series, they've got some, uh, they've got the movies on there, they've got some exclusive stuff. I think the the like 3D remake of the original Pokemon the first movie was also exclusively on Netflix. So mm-hmm. they're they're all in on on Pokemon, which was previously a Warner property. Um, but they're going live action for their next show. And Lucifer is obviously wildly popular. So Joe Henderson knows what he's doing in terms of making a show that appeals. But what is a what do you think a live action Pokemon series looks like, Kirk? Does it look like mm-hmm. Detective Pikachu, the the Ryan Reynolds movie? I guess it would be the same technology that has to be derivative of that, but I don't know. I don't know how you make that. Wait, did you say series? Series. A TV series or a, a TV series. series of films? Yeah, that seems like that's a lot. That's a lot of Pokemon in live action. <laughs> I agree. And, and my take is like, I didn't like the, the Pokemon Detective Pikachu aesthetic of the Pokemon. It was like a little bit too gritty and, and like real it was kind of creepy um in in some ways i think that movie's fine but like the i was not a fan of that animation and it's it's hard to put these like very colorful three-dimensional very caricatured monsters like in a human world so i don't know exactly how they blend that and then also like oh the target demo for pokemon is still very young children you know it, it continues to be popular with young kids so Live action isn't exactly their preferred medium either, so it's 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 an interesting choice. Maybe you throw them back into like the Pokemon world instead of like New York City or Los yeah, Angeles. Yeah, I think I think place. it would have to be like yeah in one of those regions like Kanto or Kalos or whatever. Al- Alona. Alola. Right? Alola. Alola. Yeah. yeah, they need to they need to go there because it needs to be colorful and cartoony, and I think cutesy in a way for it to work dude they, they should just move that production to hawaii and they'll be fine and the, that cast will be just like they'll be so love. happy they'll just be <laughs> sipping my ties and <laughs> just living it <laughs> dude every show that goes to hawaii lasts forever because the actors just make it work so they can live in hawaii they're like for yeah as long i can i can deal with this resort it's fine you've got the hawaii 50 original show the, the 50 reboot you've got lost you've got uh the, the, the list goes on the it's jurassic crazy. Those, world series has been like yeah. Mostly Hawaii so far. Those, <laughs> They're really those stretching out like, the production listen, timelines there. We have it made. We will make this stuff good. <laughs> yeah, we're good. Whatever. <laughs> it, it can suck. I don't care. We'll, we'll make it happen. Um, also on the Netflix front, and this is coming from Deadline, Netflix has acquired a film called Fast and Loose. 
David Leach is set to direct it. He was the director of the first John Wick film and also um, Hobbs and Shaw, I believe. And Will Smith is set to star. The premise for this film is that the film follows a man who wakes up basically with amnesia and learns that his life is two lives. He's, he's lived a double life. One as a crime lord and his other life is as an undercover CIA agent. So he's, wow. I mean, this is intense, ambitious, I should say. But it's called Fast and Loose and it's coming to Netflix. What's your What are your thoughts on that premise? Is this going to be, you know, the, the Will Smith Renaissance tour with his King Richard movie and then this? Or is this going to be another drop in the Gemini man, uh, bright bucket for, for, uh, Will Smith. That hurts. That hurts, man. But I, I tell you, I mean, I have long, I've, I'm long awaited for Will Smith to win his Oscar. King Richard could do it. Uh, this one, it's a little bit of a farther stretch, but I mean, David Leach is a, has done some incredible things. I need more information on on this because I just did a quick Google and I found a 1939 film that had no relation, uh, Fast and Loose, um, no relation whatsoever. I was hoping there was some like wonderful like blueprint of something, but also it kind of sounds like a bad spinoff of Fast and the Furious. <laughs> I don't know if the title can change a little bit. Ooh. Yeah, the the title is. A little bit cringe though he's also he's directing a film called bullet train which is supposed to be a big deal i think it has brad mm-hmm. pitt in it if i'm remembering correctly that's mm-hmm. coming out uh later on so he's a former stunt man he does some really cool stuff i should say he bounced from john wick before it was done so he was he directed it but was uncredited because there was some some change over there but he did direct deadpool 2 he directed hobbs and shaw he's directing bullet train so he's he's a big deal but I, I think the jury's out on this one. I, I don't know. I, 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 I'm not buying it yet. I'm not buying it just yet. We'll see what happens. All right, next up. Speaking of Fast and the Furious, Dwayne Johnson, in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, let it all hang out as far as things go with the Fast and the Furious. And let me tell you, it wasn't pretty. He was talking about how Vin Diesel... Vin Diesel made some comments recently, which people you know, kind of side-eyed because he was saying that his whole beef with Dwayne Johnson and, you know, if there was one, was just due to the fact that Vin Diesel was trying to make Dwayne Johnson give a better, more honest performance. He's, you know, he said it was, uh, you know, him trying to, to just bring out a better performance from, from Dwayne Johnson. And I have a quote here from Dwayne Johnson during that interview with The Hollywood Reporter when they asked him about his his thoughts on Dwayne on Vin Diesel's comments, he said, "I laughed and I laughed hard. I think everyone had a laugh at that, and I'll leave it at that. And that I've wished them well. I wish them well on Fast Nine, and I wish them the best of luck on Fast Ten and Fast Eleven and the rest of the Fast and Furious movies that they will do without me." Wow. So, uh, he's out. I mean, right? Like, you, you don't return to a franchise after that. And this is after Hobbs and Shaw was wildly successful. But it sounds like Dwayne Johnson has said goodbye to Fast and the Furious forever. Yeah. I mean, I guess the only possibility is if he kept doing, you know, two more Hobbs and Shaws Spin-offs, to give that yeah. self a trilogy. But, yeah, it sounds like he's not stepping foot in a studio with him at all. Yeah. Yeah. So it's... uh we got that going on. <laughs> so the Vin <laughs> well, Diesel, my, I in case tonight. you were worried about the Vin Diesel, Dwayne Johnson beef, not being alive. Let me just tell you, it's alive and well, it's alive and well, everyone. It's all good. 
Okay, quick hitters for you before we get into some trailer reactions. First of all, Leslie Grace has been cast as Batgirl. We were talking about this. There were a number of different actors being tested for the role, including Haley Lee Richardson, Zoe Deutsch, um, Isabella Merced, and Leslie Grace from In the Heights. She played Nina. She has emerged victorious and, and won the role of Batgirl for, for DC. And that's coming from Deadline. Jordan Peele dropped a new poster for his upcoming film, which is dropping on July 22nd, 2022. The title of the film is Nope. Nope. And stars, <laughs> at least at this point, stars Daniel Kaluuya, Stephen Yun, and Kiki Palmer, though I'm sure more people will join. Kirk, what could a movie that's called Nope be about? And, and, and for, for reference, the poster has an ominous cloud over what appears to be like a valley town and there is like some sort of like kite tail or like or balloons or like banner coming out of the cloud yeah yeah what i mean i thought there was those were balloons what i immediately thought was was that it would be like some like ultra dimension of disney and pixar's up oh (laughs) yeah twisted version of it but i mean Think about when when the nope uh, memes were were just flooding your timeline. All <laughs> I can all I can think is that he has discovered the most horrifying thing that no one wants to even go near. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is going to be in this movie, and you won't be able to get away. Um, of course, we had we had Get Out, which was a thriller psychological terror. We had Us, which I still won't watch because no, scary. it's too scary. It, it was, looks it too was, scary. It was scary. It was very the trailer scary. was scary enough for me so this one i think uh, i think it's just going to download into our brains while we sleep and we'll have no option to see it because it's it's just so it, that's how powerful just that one word is nope <laughs> like, also it's gonna be insane i am already like afraid of Candyman, and like we're gonna have oh, yeah. to see it and it looks so scary it looks so scary kirk i i don't know how many trailers you've seen for it but my god it looks so scary I, i'm very afraid of that movie yeah, I watched like 30 seconds of the first trailer and I had to bow out because I was mortified. Oh. Mortified. Oh, it's got the infamous scene with the bees in the mouth. Yes. Right? Did they recreate this for this for there, the remake? There are bees on the on the trailer. So in the OG movie, your boy, what's his name? Uh, oh, I can't think of it. That that Adonis of a man. Uh, he he put they put real bees in his mouth in no. the original film. Real bees. And I think he got like a bonus for everyone that stung him. Like, <laughs> I think they crazy. should call Candyman Nope because that's a hard yes. pass for me. I'm very scared, <laughs> and I know that we're gonna have to see it, and I'm so afraid. My only hope is that maybe surprisingly, there's like some other bigger movie coming out August 27th that I don't know about. <laughs> uh, I'm so afraid. I, I'm so I'm seriously so scared. It's gonna be bad. You know what we should do? We should see if the theater will give us permission to set up uh, reaction cams of ourselves watching yeah. the film. They should also. Then, we should also just like check with everybody in there and see if they're cool with like the the house lights being turned up so we can. <laughs> <laughs> like, hey guys, I'm a little scared. I don't really want to be in the dark right now. Are you guys cool if we just like turn on the lights or or what? Yes, I, <laughs> I agree. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a wild ride. Okay, more quick hitters. Zack Snyder's Stone Quarry Productions has signed a first look deal with Netflix. That's coming from the Hollywood Reporter. Basically, what that means is when Zack Snyder and his wife Deborah their production company when they make a movie or I guess a series or what have you. 
Netflix will have the first right of refusal to say, yes, we want this or no, we don't. And then from there, it goes into the open market if they don't pass on it. This isn't overly surprising given the Army of the Dead stuff that's going on with Netflix. Zack Snyder's had nothing but good things to say about Netflix and vice versa. So not overly surprising, but it is a big development for sure. And next, I want to do a little bit of trailer reaction, Kirk. Can we react to some trailers? Yes, please. All right, let's do it. First up is a very, very exciting film. A little film that we've been hearing about for a little while now called Dune. Dune. This is Denis Villeneuve, and this is, you know, I mean, one of the most anticipated movies ever. And this is the first, what I feel like is the first full trailer. We, we got that, like, extended teaser uh, late last year, and this movie's been pushed back a zillion times. Now it's releasing October 22nd of this year. But, Kirk, I have to get your thoughts on this full Dune trailer, and, man, is it chock full of stuff. Yeah, so what we have going on in this trailer is uh, a complete revitalization of the original movie. I recently watched the original movie uh, right before the pandemic when this everything was still on track, and this was coming out right like December. it was supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, of last yeah, year. Yeah, so... It was it was going to be sooner. I need to rewatch the other one. The original is terrible. It's I don't know how it was ever made. But we we see I can see all of the tropes of that movie, all of the the strong details of storytelling, and actually extrapolated on here and made into something really exciting. Uh, the only fear I have is that this trailer is really long. It's almost like a short of the film. It's three and a half minutes. <laughs> it is long. It's a long trailer. I'm a little I'm a little worried that we get the. I don't want it to be like a comedy where we get the best jokes, where we're getting the best visuals and the best action. I don't want it to be that. But there's a lot of confidence I have of Oscar Isaacs, Josh Brolin, uh, Timothy Chalamet, Zendaya. We have and uh, Rebecca Ferguson. We have so many stars in this film that I don't think they can let us down, despite there being, again, the formula of too many stars in the film. Yeah. I mean, honest opinion, it looks sick. It looks so good. I, I... My mouth was agape the first time I watched this whole trailer because it just looks, it looks like Denis Villeneuve just smashed this out of the park, which wouldn't be a surprise for him. That's sort of par for the course. He's, he's like the hottest guy on in town as far as directors go. And man, this looks like an incredible feather in his cap. And it really looks like the start of our next big sci-fi franchise that everybody's going to freak out over. Um, I think everybody's been kind of wondering why somebody hasn't already done this with Dune. I know, like you said, it's been attempted a couple of times, but nobody's managed to bring it to its full potential. You know, people who love the sci-fi genre in books have nothing but incredible things to say about Frank Herbert's whole Dune series. It's it's massive. It's epic. um, And this looks like every bit of that. And I'm not even going to be done talking and this trailer will still be be going on by the time i'm done it, it is so long to your point kirk but it looks fantastic and i can't yeah there's that see. scene just a few seconds ago where you saw timothy chalamet like jump kick and like take down something that scene in the movie might it's almost as if uh, that was the only good part of the original film so it's funny <laughs> that it has the least showcase in this trailer uh that that was like my favorite part of the original uh with with your boy kyle mclaughlin but this the, the chemistry that we have between these other characters is so much stronger. My only fear is that, you know, we're getting pretty, um, you know, this was filmed in what, 2019? Yeah, maybe must parts have been, of right? Yeah. Late 2018 even. 
The only fear I have is that Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya hadn't reached their full maturity in under in understanding like their full potential, and that they might not be at their best in this film. I'm a little I'm a little uh, uh, reserved about that, but there's so much else going on in the movie that they don't necessarily have to be, you know, at the top of their game for this sci-fi movie. They they can just be present and use their existing skills. My only concern and worry right there. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Anytime a movie gets delayed for as long as that one has, it's uh, it's of concern for sure. All right, next trailer and last trailer reaction. We've got Ghostbusters Afterlife almost a year and a half after we got our first full trailer. Actually, more than a year and a half, I think, after we got our first full trailer. We get the second full trailer. This movie, of course, starring Paul Rudd, Finn Wolfhard, um, among many others. I mean, I think we have to, of course, speculate that there will be some appearances by certain members of the original cast. Maybe maybe one Bill Murray, per se. Yeah, um, I think Dan Aykroyd is the final voice in this trailer. I'm, oh, you do? Guessed. Whenever the phone comes up? It sounds a little like him. Man, I was going to say Bill Murray. Okay. I was going to say, I, it, 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 I think they will both appear in the film, you know, yeah. personally. I, I really do think they will. Um, but now that we've gotten a deeper look at the plot of the movie, um, what are your thoughts on this? It's kind of, uh, this is this is similar to what Jurassic World did to the Jurassic Park series, you know? Mm-hmm. So what's kind of nice about that is that it's already familiar. Everyone, you know, has these uh, strong love, these strong love feelings for, uh, for nostalgia. Of course, that's why everything's getting remade. Yeah. But... It, it just looks good. Every every take of this movie looks good. I was, when there was no trailer, I was like, meh, whatever. But as soon as that first teaser dropped, I was like, whoa, this is a direction I did not expect from this franchise. Yeah, definitely. And also, I forgot to mention McKenna Grace is in the movie, Sigourney Re- Weaver, uh, Carrie Coon, who uh, plays the mother of this family. So, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm buying it. Yeah, the the Stay Puffed marshmallow people, the tiny there's, marshmallows. There's like a million of them rolling through the <laughs> through the grocery store, attacking, yeah. making self sacrificial s'mores. Yes, yes. <laughs> I feel like this feels like a good homage. I, I really do. I think it, it does feel like a good homage, and I and I hope that it pans out. But um, Jason Reitman great director um they're they're i think they're very lucky to have had him on board for this because i think he he just sort of understands that nostalgia factor and and how to bring something to life in an honest and genuine way and not make it feel forced and and campy and crappy um but yeah it should be it should be very interesting i'm excited i'm definitely excited and yeah of course we get the tease at the end uh somebody picking up the red the red phone and, and kirk's saying dan Aykroyd. i'm saying i'm saying bill murray only time will tell but i think they will both safely i, I will safely say i think they will both appear in the film all right that's all we got i think let me check my notes one last time because there's been so many oh also we're not going to talk about this trailer but the trailer for the card counter starring oscar isaac and Ty Sheridan and, and some others is out. Paul Schrader is the one behind that movie. He wrote Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. And that trailer looks terrible. I, I just have to say that, like, it's premiering, I think, at the Venice Film Festival. Um, Paul Schrader's written some good movies. He's written some bad movies. And I think this one's going to be bad. I just do. I don't think it looks good. 
you know, you know, there can be the strongest of, of artists in the room, but if the collaboration doesn't come through as a whole vision, it's not going to be good. And, and if it's what, and if it's not, if it is good, then they made a truly bad trailer. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's one of those things. Like, and that happens for sure. There are times where you see a trailer and you're like, oof. Well, that, that would be rough. a wonderful schoolyard pick. We would just need like weeks of research. Research, time. yeah. Bad trailer, good movie, or vice yes. versa. Good trailer, bad movie. There's been both for sure. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. But that would be a fun one. That would be a fun one. All right, let's pop it up one last time and then head into our review. All right, we got a lot to cover. We're So here's how we're going to do this, because we're reviewing three movies, but we're doing it as one review. We're, we're going to, you know, if you want to give scores for each movie, Kirk, you're empowered to do so. I'm giving I'm giving one score for the whole trilogy. I may, I may rank which ones I liked best to, to worst or whatever, but I'm giving one score. We're going to be doing all of our superlatives as just one for the whole series, and uh, got it. we'll go from there. So I believe... It is my turn to synopse Fear Street, the trilogy. So Fear Street is a three-movie series that they released a few weeks apart on Netflix and sort of captured the attention of streamers all around the country and the world. I think it's been um, very popular. I've seen lots of people talking about it. It's a big one on Letterboxd. If anybody's on that app, tons of people reviewing it. Um, basic premise is that there is a town called Shadyside that has for years been having these events every few years where something horrific happens. You know, somebody snaps and kills a bunch of people at a summer camp or at a mall or what have you. And they start to realize that there's more there than meets the eye and that some of the urban legends that have been around about this, um, you know, this witch, Sarah Fear, from back in the 1600s during like the Salem witch trial times, uh, may not just be urban legends and rumors and may actually be contributing to what's going on. So what starts off as a series that's just a, you know, what feels like a very like late 80s, early 90s slasher type film evolves into this more supernatural thing that that ties all these movies together. Of course, like most great horror movies and like R.L. Stein books, there is a, a tr- you know, a, a troop of young people who are trying to solve this whole thing. Um, they're in the year 1994, but we bounce around. So the first movie takes place in 1994. The second movie takes place in 1978. And the third movie takes place in 1666 before jumping back to 1994 to resolve the whole uh, conflict. So mm-hmm. we cover a lot of ground. Each movie is right around what, like an hour 45 a piece. Yep. So total runtime of the whole thing is like right around four and a half hours or so. Um, yeah. Great binging. I, I watched them all <laughs> within like less than 24 hours. So it's, it's great <laughs> binge watchable type movie thing. Um, and it's very, it's very inventive. We should be, we should be thankful that, you know, something like this would have never been possible in the past for them to release three movies within a couple of weeks of each other and you can watch them all. You can watch them, you know, binge watch them in a couple of weeks or whatever. Like this is a totally different, unique experience that I think people aren't really realizing. So this is this is cool. But let's let's talk about Fear Street, Kirk. Did I miss anything? No. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. All right. Well, with that, we are going to jump into our superlatives, and this is going to be this is going to be tricky. Remember, we got three yes. films 
that we're choosing from here. Um, my Oscar, my Oscar is going to Miss Sadie Sink, who was in the second film and the third one. Mm-hmm. She plays Ziggy. And you, if you don't recognize that name, she is an up and coming actor. I think she's like 19 years old these days. And she uh, came onto the scene most notably in Stranger Things as, um, oh man, what's her character's name in Stranger Things? Hold on. I'll figure uh, this out. She is. I'll figure this out. Max. Max. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so yeah, she, she came on the scene in Stranger Things, you know, sort of like the new kid in town. Um, Man, she's got she brings a lot to the table as an actor and, and it's one of those things where like you're watching the first like part 1 and you're like okay, this is like pretty typical horror film acting particularly for a slasher, particularly for a film with like no real star power. Um and then you get to the second movie and you're like holy cow, Sadie Sink's the best actor on the screen and it's not particularly close um compared to both the first movie and everybody that she's acting uh, with in the 1978 Fear Street. Other thing about Sadie Sink, as always, uh, we talk about this with good actors, they elevate the game of everybody around them. Scenes that she's shared with other actors, particularly um, the actor who played her sister, uh, Cindy. Cindy was the name of the character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, really elevated her game, and and they, they shared some really great scenes together. What the level of believability that Sadie Sink can bring to situations like this is pretty remarkable. She did it in Stranger Things where there's obviously, you know, supernatural stuff going on. Same sort of vibe here. In fact, I think she, I mean, she's pretty much wearing the exact same outfit that she wears in Stranger <laughs> Things, uh, which is pretty hilarious. But um, she just brings a level of believability and honesty to a scene that is is hard to find from somebody her age. It's really impressive. I her you know her dialogue abilities her her ability to read other people play off of them provide a grounded performance you know the way she like sort of looks around the room you know the way that she sometimes feels awkward about things like it's just all very tangible very real um and i thought she was spectacular so she's getting my oscar even though she you know screen time wise wasn't the largest of of all the characters yeah it's it's very easy for me to also select Sadie Sink as my best actress throughout the entire series. You, you nailed it. Uh, it it's as almost as if uh, yeah, the same clothes from Stranger Things, as if they're like, all right, Sadie, we, uh, we need you to take a break and come film over on Fear Street real quick. I know you're <laughs> filming season four of Stranger Things, but we just need you real quick. Uh, you just got to like run from some uh, crazy psycho over here in Fear Street. Okay, great. And you're 1978, go. <laughs> so that's what it feels like in this. Um, some fun facts about Sadie Sink that I just pulled up is that she was born and born and raised in Texas. She uh, always wanted to do some kind of community theater. She got a Broadway audition and was the lead in the 2012 revival of Annie. So your girl can sing. We haven't heard her. We did hear her sing in stranger things a little bit, you know, Oh, that's true. But not like front and center. So the the list goes on. I mean, she is going to continue to just kill it. Uh, she, uh, just as Cam said as well, uh, you know, there's no question who has the most authority on the screen when 
put next to her. It's just she lays it all out there. Uh, complete vulnerability and complete believability. Sadie Sink has got it all. I can't wait to see if for some reason we get additional Fear Street movies you know, there's American Horror Story out there that likes to use the same actors over and over again. It'd be interesting if they do the same here, uh, if they use these same actors in a different capacity and different roles and kind of pull them all together somehow. Uh, I'd be interested in that and to see if they would use Sadie Sink in that as well. Um, and again, the whole, the whole crew, but she stole the show. Well, 100% best actress. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, will they carry it on? I mean, it certainly would be somewhat unprecedented in terms of the medium, you know, that's why I keep talking about this because you have to realize that like being able to have three movies released like this and then to have it be like a series where like another set of three movies comes out is just, it's a very unique thing. And this is something that just could never have been created without the advent of streaming services and services that are specifically dedicated to streaming this, a project like this would never see the light of day. Um, but yeah, they leave it open ended. To your point, Kirk. I mean, at, at the end of the of the third movie, there's a kind of a credit scene. Like the credits are rolling and they cut in in and out. But the uh, the demon book, because there's always a demon book. Yes, always. <laughs> things nowadays uh, gets snatched up by by some hands that we don't know, you know, and, and gets taken away. So they're definitely leaving it open for for the potential of more to come. Yes. All right, let's uh, let's move into Scene Stealer. And man, talk about a ton of different options. We got three movies to pick from with slightly different casts and different characters. Um, for my money, I am going with Julia Raywald, who played Kate. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that last name right. It's R E H W A L D. So apologies, Julia, if I'm saying your name incorrectly. But she plays Kate who is, you know, part of the original band of high school students in Shadyside who are out to, to solve what's going on. She's she's a fun supporting character, you know, cynical, but um, has, has a big heart. You know, you kind of c- come to find out. She's like one of those who's like sort of the like popular cheerleader type girl who when you get to learn more about her, you realize that she really is a very nice person and caring. And even though she's a little rough around the edges, you know, there's, there's something more there and she goes out in a blaze of glory. Her head gets shredded in some sort of uh, meat grinder thing at, at a deli in a, in a supermarket, Dude. Um, which was so, which was so sad because she had really, she really had a great character arc up to that point. She appears again in the third movie playing like, one of the characters from 1666 because they kind of do some weirdness there. And so she showed great range. I thought her character, um, I don't know if her character was written with a ton of depth, but I felt like with her delivery and the way that she portrayed the character, she gave it a little bit more depth. So it wasn't just this like one dimensional part. And she hasn't been in much, but I expect to see more of her because I really thought she was, she was a standout among the cast of that original film. And, um, yeah, I thought she was great. I really did. So, Julia, that's my scene. Stealer. Wonderful. Uh, just briefly, you know, we had some kills and attacks in the movie. So when when Kate gets killed in part one in 1994, you know, someone got hit with an axe. You know, they, they split the back of their head. There's some blood gushing against the camera. Yeah. Um, there's some stabbings, you know. Okay, we get it. Yeah, this 
that moment when they throw her head through that meat shredder. Yeah. It took it to a different level that I did not anticipate. For sure. I was watching it at like one o'clock in the morning. Um, they give you no time to look away the way that they <laughs> shot it and edited it so that you're forced to see it. There's no time because you figure, oh, they're going to cut away. No, no, they do not cut away. And it just it gives this series a new element uh, of, you know, we have we have the, they're playing on the 90s. They're playing on a, a whole generation who grew up in that time, whether you were you were a child or you were a teenager or in your early 20s. So a whole, a whole slew of generations that know what the 90s is and feels like. And then they throw your girl Kate's head through that shredder and they just flip literally pun intended flip it on its head to of what you anticipated in this this kind of series <laughs> um and then that's kind of the the biggest gore moment we get and it gets more and more brutal and more and more creepy uh, or creepier rather we get sam you know creepily stabbing uh dina right, right at the yeah, end of yeah. the first one in a creepy way and then it just they're like all right cool that's the warm-up and then we get part two and part three which continues to get aggressively um more violent which i didn't anticipate i don't really I don't really like go into scary movies um, because a lot of the times there's, there's the missing human element, but in this whole series, we get a really good arc uh, w- w- in regards to that, despite the, the gore. So if you're a little uh, weary on, on the, on the gore side of things, still be weary of this series, but uh, there's a strong enough story behind all of it. So with all of that said, I'm going to be brief on my scene stealer. Uh, mine's different from, from you in this regard, uh, which is exciting, right? We don't want to be the same. Um, I'm going to pick Mr. Benjamin Flores Jr. Who plays Josh, which is nice. our, our lead, our, our mostly lead character uh, throughout all three films. Dina, Josh, uh, played by Benjamin Flores Jr., is the uh, brother of our main character who's kind of figuring all of this out, who's kind of the, the leader in piecing things together. He's the guy and in the chair. He's the guy in the chair. <laughs> yeah, he really is. He really is. He um, he's, he's seemingly... When you first see him, he's kind of he's kind of bullied a little bit in school. Um, he um, just he's got like a crush on Kate, actually, who then sees her get her her brains like shredded. Um, but there is there is a lot of um, a lot of growing up he does in this series, rightfully so, because of the traumatic events that he's put through. And I just think that he does he does a good job, uh, Mr. Benjamin Flores Jr. He uh, he he shows us a couple of different sides of of bravery, courage, and very realistic fear. Like he is um, almost you know the audience surrogate in a way. He's like, listen this is nuts. Uh, I don't know how we're going to get through this. Here's a couple of ideas. And then those ideas failed. And then he tried again. They failed. He tried again. He just kept trying because what else is he going to do? But I really enjoyed his performance. Yeah, I like it. And I think it's, it, it highlights a, a good point, which is that even though he was like a very, uh, stereotypical horror trope, like you can, you can do stuff with those performances. Like there are certain genre, like, cliches and things like that that you have these bit parts you know he was the nerdy kid and and they have specific things that tend to happen to them in films and for you know for all intents and purposes those things happen to to josh's character but he brought more to the table than just playing that bit part so i like that i like that um yeah let's dig into showstopper 
and uh, then director shoes. But we'll start with Showstopper. For me, it really is the 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 narrative and the concept. I think I, I again I, I'm so thrilled with the idea of this three movie trilogy tying together, releasing in short order, and it's really this like hybrid of a movie series and a limited series and a TV show. Like it's really it's really an interesting um, thing, and I think. It's it also is high risk because if they don't mm-hmm. keep you hooked from movie to movie, you you risk falling off. And I don't think, um, I don't think there's any chance if you finish number one, you're not sticking around for the other two because it's fun. It is if you're you know you 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 know going into it that you're going into a horror film. So if you come in for a slasher, you get some of that. If you like the supernatural stuff, you get a lot of that. Um, and it sort of just grows. And they really hook you from movie to movie to be like ooh. What's coming next? You know, they leave you on these cliffhangers that you want to learn more about. And at the end, I think you're pretty satisfied with the payoff. It's like, okay, you know, there there was some cool stuff. They caught me by surprise on a few things. I think that that death of Kate, the very gory death that we've talked about a few times, is really a good turning point for the film because I don't think, based on her character arc, you see it coming. And then so then when it happens, it sets the tone of like, oh, man, anything could happen. And then a few other crazy things happen. Then we go back into 1978. And so it follows this really interesting progression of starting in the present and then kicking back through time and then ultimately jumping back to 1994. Um, They just do some really creative stuff from a narrative perspective. And I was very pleasantly pleasantly surprised by that. Um, And it made for, if nothing else, just a very fun, enjoyable viewing experience that I think, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of things in the movies that you can pan these movies for, but I think if you go into it, um, wanting a fun horror story, you're going to be pretty pleased. And I think you're going to be glad that you sticked around to the end. And I think that that's part of the reason it's been such a popular pick for Netflix. So the concept, the narrative, however you want to call it, um, I think they pulled it off. I really do. Yeah, I love that because when you when you look at this movie, you're like, okay, we're in 1994, um, and you're mostly in 1994 uh, throughout that, and you get a little glimpse of of what of that we're gonna take a, a peek back into 1978. We don't get there, but then 1978, you're in the present. You're still in 1994, and you're getting these flash these glimpses of of Fear Street Part Three, 1666, yes. and all three. I love that we weren't stuck in any of them particularly in any in any of the films and and specifically i'm really glad we weren't stuck in it in 1666 because that time era for whatever reason i hate that time i do too i hate it that um you know one of the one of the only like recent memories that i enjoyed it was in uh, wandavision with katherine hahn and on basically on the salem witch trials for for her crimes like that was the only time i enjoyed a scene like that it was short it was sweet and it was magic right like you actually saw her use her magic and it was kind of creepy cool but generally i hate that time frame yeah dude that early colonial stuff it sucks like nothing good or cool was happening until the american revolution so that's where like we should start with as far as like that (laughs) era. Like if you want to go back farther than that, by all means, but anything from the time that the pilgrims arrived in the U S until the American revolution, I want nothing to do with it. Nothing. If your movie doesn't have electricity in it, I'm not watching (laughs) it on purpose (laughs) because uh, what are you, you're going to churn the butter. You're going to attend to the cows. You're you're going to speak old English. I'm going to hate it. Yeah. 
Oh man. I mean, one thing they did. Okay. I'll, 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 I'll continue on, but wonderful. The story, the narrative. I loved it. I'm going to get three, three quick hitters on, on my favorite um, moments of these, the showstoppers, one per film in fear street part one. It's absolutely Maya Hawk's death scene uh, that stole the show because when, when they released the first couple minutes of this, they pretty much released the entirety of Maya Hawk's role in that film. Yep. And you don't see her again unless it's in the form of a dead body. I thought that was brilliant. It's a throw, a throwback to scream. You know, you've got of Drew Barrymore's uh, fame uh, death scene and Maya Hawk kills it. Absolutely kills it. I'm surprised they didn't tie her in in any other way, but I'm also glad they didn't once I saw the rest of the story play out. So uh, best part showstopper fear street, uh, 1994 Maya Hawk's death. Fear Street Part 2, 1978 has to be Sadie and her sister's, uh, Ziggy and her sister's death scene. Absolutely brutal. Lying on their backs, just getting hacked. I mean, it was horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. And you just hear the Foley artist having the time of their life with that (laughs) that axe going into their chest, like... And like going in and going out, it's absolutely horrifying, but it was also done so well that the emotional um, uh, climax of that moment was so huge that you are totally invested. You were, you weren't so much disgusted as you were devastated by what you were seeing uh, and wrapping your mind around like, how do they survive this? Like what, how are we sitting in a room with her in 1994 um, and and getting this uh, on a camp at Camp Nightwing in 1978? So that's number two. And in number in part three, it has to be the montage speaking to the narrative that you said, the montage that ties it all together. When we find out Nick good and the goods family. Uh, and again, love the the irony of their last name of good, the, the good family tradition of summoning the, through the demon book, the, you know, killing someone for the, for the continuation and the prosperity with deal with the devil, whatever you want to call it, that montage that ties it all together was so wonderfully done. And it was really exciting to see it pull together in such a seamless way. It wasn't forced. Uh, so whoever designed the structure of that, uh, that is where they really brought it home, and I was really just so happily surprised by that montage that that has that took uh, that that was the showstopper of part three. I love it. One for each of them, right? Just uh, mm-hmm. handing out handing out showstoppers all around. I dig it. <laughs> Kirk's got nothing but love to give right now. He's just he's showstopping it up. I love it. <laughs> uh, great calls all around. Um, let's go to the other side. Let's go to the other side of the coin. Let's talk about things that could have been done better, things that we would recommend be done differently. Um, I just realized my uh, my chair pillow is on here, so that was <laughs> kind of thrown off my vibe just now. <laughs> Apologies for that. I got a fancy new chair. It has a pillow because uh, yes. I'm extra like that. But anyway, <laughs> moving right along, and let's see if I can gather my thoughts here after that catastrophic uh, distraction. Um, the years, Okay. Now I can I can poke at plenty of things in these movies, right? I mean, there's there's it's low budget and sometimes it feels low budget, right? I think we can all acknowledge that. Um, there are times where the acting isn't stellar. There are times where the writing isn't stellar. There are times where you know there's there's plenty of things you could poke at, no doubt. But the thing that really irks me is the years are are seemingly arbitrary, with the exception of 1666 because it has to be back in that like which time type of thing, which I get, but like 
when they're in 1994, I don't feel like there's attention to detail there to really tell you that it's 1994. Like there's inconsistencies with the style, um, with the, you know, the character design, the character hair and makeup, things like that, the different events that they go to, the, you know, the way the school looks, things like that. It's like, first of all, why are we in 1994? Does that matter? And also, like, this doesn't totally look like 1994. Just because you have, like, I, I don't know, like, just because you have a horror film aesthetic and some things are 90s doesn't mean that, like, we should care that it's 1994. Same with 1978. Like, didn't feel like the hair that they committed to it on the hairstyles, the costume design, the set design. You know, the camp was fine, but it just didn't like, you know, even the way that they shot the film, it didn't necessarily feel like there was a change there in terms of the time. Um, I just would have, th those are like attention to detail types of things that, that put things over the edge in terms of being really good. And if you're going to have films that have years in the name, those years should really matter. And you should, you should take particular care to make them matter, to be like, okay, it's 1994, why does that matter? Let's throw these things in, let's make sure it looks like this, and there should be a difference in the way that it looks. I feel like in the 1666, they did they did more of that in part three. Um, even though I don't like that era, I do feel like they were a little bit more committed to that era, probably because they had to be, because it's mm -hmm. literally like a period piece at that point. But for 1994 and 1978, I mean, they could have said anything. You know, they, they might as well said it was 2010 and, you know, 1955. I mean, who cares? They, they, <laughs> they just didn't really commit to it to the level that I thought they should. Um, and at that point, why not just call it Fear Street Part 1, Part 2, Part 3? But mm -hmm. that's, that's the thing that bugs me. I think there's more to pick at, but um, that's one of those things that's just like, come on. If, you, if you're going to do an era, like, you can't just have, like, different colors, different lighting. Like there's more to it than that. There's a lot more detail that goes into it. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't he even hear a mention of a Tamagotchi in the 1994. Uh, That's part. what I'm saying. So, there weren't many pop what? cultural references. Like there were some, there were some like musical references, which is fine. That's easy. You know, I could do that. <laughs> you know, if you told me your era is 1994, pick some music for a film, like easy enough. Right. But um, beyond that, there just wasn't much. Yeah, I uh, love it. Uh, that's that's 100% correct. My director's shoes goes to the fact that this series at times uh, was not as mature as it wanted to be. So we have the this incredible arc, uh, honestly, for, for all three films, but some of the dialogue just is like, why are they talking about that? Or why are they talking so long uh, about that? Or why is the dialogue falling short? You know, we didn't even get uh, t just also queuing to your point. We didn't even get a lot of nineties jargon. As we go through decades, we get jargon. We get kind of almost like an accent. There's like a rhythm to it. You know, uh, you can go back and watch these, you watch films from this time period or watch home videos from this time period. And there's a rhythm to how people speak because of what culture was like. We, and it's all, it's all the same note throughout, throughout all of them. And even into 1666, we get, uh, messed up accents we get some irish we get some <laughs> british we get and then they're all but then they all end up dropping and go to modern day um americanized accents so the the definitely uh, I'm, I'm with you on all on all those details cam and uh i i just wish that when we it would have dove full in on knowing that they could have um spoke on a level that was more of 
high school drama, which is kind of what it, it, it keeps leaning on towards all of these that it could have had um, kind of more existential conversations that would have uh, given this a better, a better right hook or left hook, if you will. Yeah, I'll buy that. I'll buy that for sure. I think that's, uh, those are good notes. I mean, <laughs> yeah, the 1666 thing was funny. It, it was funny in the sense that, you know, the accents were dropping, they were inconsistent. You know, these are young actors for the most part across the board here. Um, some did better than others, but they, it just never really felt united. And what's really funny is they do this, what I think is a, a pretty clever and like cool trick of like having all the same actors play characters in the 1666 version. But what that does is that gives you an out for having to use the dial dialect of the day. Like they could True. have used modern English the whole way and just been like, this is a stylistic choice, but they, they didn't. And I felt like they definitely could have with the way that they casted it and, and they chose not to. So yeah, I agree. And I think a lot of that goes back to, again, like attention to detail, like we've been talking about. Um, so it's a good call. All right, we got to score this thing. We're scoring all three movies as a whole. Um, maybe I'll give thoughts on. Are you going to rank them, Kirk? In order, I'll rank them too. Yeah. Okay. 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 Well, let's save our rankings for the for the last. We'll give our scores first, and then we'll rank them just for for funsies before we get into our schoolyard pick. Um, so, Fear Street. <laughs> it's so funny. I can't remember a time where I felt more like, yeah, that was fine. That was fun. You know, you know, like I can't remember a time where I felt like so non-emotional about something than I have about this trilogy. Like I didn't hate it and I, and I didn't love it. I, I thought it was fun. I'm glad that I watched it. I would probably recommend it to other people. Um, I think there's plenty to poke at with it. I think that at times it's predictable though. You know, there are certain elements of it that aren't like whenever they kill certain characters or in things certain ways, but the ultimate arc of like where it ends up is not overly surprising. I think you go into the first movie and you're like, well, yeah, that guy's last name's good. And, and he's obviously evil. He's given off total evil vibes. And so whenever it ends up being like him and his family in the end, you're like, yeah, that, that, that's par for the course. I, I mean, pretty much saw that was perfectly quaffed. Like, there's no way he's a good guy. Isn't he from uh, Succession? Wasn't he... Ooh, you know, wasn't he Shiv's, Wasn't he Shiv's... Uh, the guy... Like, they both worked for that uh, political candidate. Yeah, was he the the one that she wants to cheat on? Very yeah, possible. I think so. I think so, but... I digress. Um, I thought he was... I thought he was pretty good as well. They're not scene stealer material in, for, for my money, but... Yes, back to my point. It's predictable at times. There's bad acting at times. There's bad dialogue at times. I don't think it has a particular sense of style or attention to detail, but the narrative is good. The, you know, the homage to the genre, which I feel like, it, you know, that's what this is. This is this is an homage to fear. This is an homage to R.L. Stein, who's one of the most, you know, storied um writers in in the horror genre that we've had and and that that's really what this is is an homage to that and i think they do a great job they do they they give you a good slasher movie they, they give you a couple of good slasher movies they give you a good supernatural sort of thing and, and it's it's very fun throughout and and like i said earlier the payoff is great um even though it's a little bit predictable it's it's fun to watch and, and you're happy with how it ends and so yeah i get why this is popular I enjoyed it. I would, I've watched it once. If somebody wanted to watch it with me, like my wife was like, Hey, I want to check out fear street. I would watch it again. Mm -hmm. But 
that's probably where I'll leave it. And and when the second set of these comes out, if they do, I'll I'll be there for it. But um, it's not spectacular. It's just fun. And so I'm giving it a 6.0 out of 10 for the Fear Street trilogy on the whole. Excellent. Right, what was sir. that score again? Say it again. 6.0 out of 10 kernels. 6.0. Beautiful, beautiful. Yes. So your boy, uh, Mr. Nick Good, he was on Succession. He was the um, the seductive uh, campaign manager, you yeah, know, whatever yeah, he was, assistant. So. Um, he's what I like to call a TV hopper. He's been in just dozens of dozens of TV shows, hasn't quite found his... Um, his footing i think this role gave him some some pretty good light succession i thought he was good in as well yeah he was Um, good in this i really did think he was good yeah and he has great hair uh let's continue on that and then uh last he's coming up in a pilot episode uh called the lost symbol which follows the early adventures of famed harvard symbologist mr robert langdon uh from uh from mr we know we knew that of course from tom hanks original role in this series as well on the big screen. So that'll be kind of neat. I think that's a good fit for, for him in, in this guy's career. So we'll see what happens. His name is Ashley Zuckerman. Uh, pretty, right. pretty handsome young strapping fellow. But if I have to extrapolate, uh, not on that, but on the fear street trilogy as a whole, I feel that I will also go in and out of this accent first. And second, I will also expand upon, uh, it's, it was just good. It wasn't, grand it wasn't terrible it was just good uh you you get hooked into this this whole the drama of it uh, i just a moment ago spoke on how it didn't need to be dramatic high school dramatic but those very elements draw us in you know why do we watch things like like that one netflix dating show where you never got to see the person love is blind right yeah. why do you watch big brother or, or or anything like that or the voice where you're just like this is so cool. They, they took these little bits of all of that and they sucked us into all of it. So uh, bravo on the structure, bravo on the marketing. Uh, the years don't matter, but they, they, they sucked us in because if you were alive during that time frame or you enjoyed or you enjoyed the idea of that time frame, just, just brilliant, brilliant marketing, I think is what this comes down to with an overall um, pretty fantastic job of, uh, of unity between the stories and the storytelling. I think I would agree uh, on that score. Um, I'm going to give it uh, 6.4 was on my notes here that, yeah, I'd watch it again uh, if someone asked me to, but otherwise uh, it'll just be living in my memory as, Hey, remember when Netflix dropped that series of RL Stein books that was a little gorier than I remember the series to be not bad, not bad. <laughs> Yeah, I love that you bring up the marketing. I love it because I, I do think they're they're the unsung heroes of this whole thing. I think, you know, you watch it and you go, why was this even called Fear Street? This isn't R.L. Stein. You know, yeah. like it, it has the vibe, but it's definitely, um, I don't know that I would call it a hard R, but it's an, it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's an easy R rated movie across the board, all of them. And that's a bit, you know, more intense than R.L. Stein. You know, you think about Goosebumps, you think about, um, are you afraid of the dark type stuff with, with him and then fear street. But, um, you know, I think the name is why they did it. <laughs> you know, the, the story didn't matter. It was the name they wanted. They wanted people from our generation or, or earlier to go, Oh, RL Stein. Yeah. That, you know, get some warm fuzzies about that because everybody liked that growing up. And, um, yeah, I think social media people were all over it talking about it. Um, 
and, and it worked out. It was a fun little community viewing experience for all of us, and I think that we will all enjoy it. So, um, yeah, and it was so much easier during the pandemic to sneak movies uh, across our screen because yes, no one there were no big theatrical movies anymore. So this was just like in the background. I'm sure if we would have taken the time oh, to man. look up this, this we would have seen this it, during but, this time last year would have been electric. Yeah. People would have been people like it would be the talk of the town, man, for sure, yeah. for sure, because we had nothing to watch. Yeah, last for summer. a long stretch, you know, and, you know, this that trailer with uh, with Maya Hawk dropped two weeks before this premiere. They're like, yeah. hey, look at this and then plan your next three Fridays. We'll be there for you. Pretty nuts. Pretty yeah. smart. It was smart. It was smart across the board. So, yeah, that's Fear Street. Let's rank the all three movies real quick. I'm going. um Part two, part three, part one. Okay. Okay. I'm going part two, part one, part three, strictly because I despise the, <laughs> that era, even though it was a strong <laughs> contender. You you saw sixty you saw sixteen sixty six on the poster and you're like, oh. I was like, that will be my least favorite. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> and I no. dug my heels. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I get it. I, I I really do. I don't know why, but I totally get it. Also, last thing I just remembered, pee your pants meter on Fear Street. I'm going to go, I've been thinking about this actually. I'm going to go five because I don't think this is going to haunt your dreams by any means. I feel like this is something you could watch and then go straight to bed. No problem. In fact, I did. And, and it was, you know, no nightmares, no no squirmies, nothing weird. Um, but there are times, you know, when that, when that lumberjack guy with the axe and the face thing is running at the screen, that will give me fear of goosebumps every time. You know, the jogging, the light jogging with the axe. Like, that is scary. Anytime you run at the camera, it's terrifying. Um, and there are some surprising kills. I think the one that you mentioned, or not kills, but when Sam stabs Dina in the stomach. And, and you kind of almost know that it's coming, but it's still like, ooh, you know, it gives you that, the heebie-jeebies. So there are, some, there are some scary moments, but I did not come close to peeing my pants at any point. I did not scream out loud or jump out of my seat, though there were some pretty good jump scares. There were, I think that what would be interesting, uh, would be to like really monitor my, my Apple watch heart rate yeah. during these and then like time it out. Like, okay, that mar that part with that part, uh, because yeah, when, when Sam, uh, stabs Dina, when, uh, they slice Kate, Kate's head through the shredder, when, um, uh, <laughs> there's just moments uh, when when they're when the, the death kill in the they open the latrine your girl gets you know sabotaged and locked in the latrine and they open the door and she lunges at them oh right. yeah that's a good um, one strictly the the latrine idea itself that that was part of the cave yeah uh, it was disgusting and rightfully so it disgusting and into the depths of of caves and hell and pits yeah. and ugh, like, like all of that I, I would agree there were moments where i was looking around my room ipad on my chest my lovely wife next to me as i'm watching this movie <laughs> and i'm like looking around the room like is someone in this room right now because Just trying to ground yourself in reality yeah it, yeah it felt like it i would say i would say i'm around five as well um with spikes in there of of those moments like that those moments were like straight up to 10 but like baseline five yeah 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 i, I I don't know. I reserve the high numbers for things that make me think about it hard afterwards. And this was like, I had no issue with that whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Like certainly there were times where I was like, you know, uh, <laughs> but never like, I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. <laughs> so it's just, yeah. that's, that's when you get into the seven, eight, nine, ten range in my opinion. Um, yeah. 
All right. That's it. That's it on Fear Street. That's the book on Fear Street. Let us know your thoughts. If you have rankings per movie, um, I'll be putting my per movie rankings for what it's worth on Letterboxd. If you guys want to follow me there, we've talked about Letterboxd. It's a movie review app and a social media channel where people just go on there and review movies. That you can see what movies uh, people you follow have watched. I've, I've been keeping my diary updated. If you follow me on there, you would know that I watched Mystic River last night. Um, you know, I, I keep my scores in there and, and every once in a while I'll jot down a review. So check it out. If you like movies, it's a perfect app for you and uh, you can get additional reviews from us on Letterboxd. And and maybe right. if you throw us a follow, we'll follow you back. Um, just search my username is I think Cam Wiggs. Kirk, do you know your username? I believe it's at Curlington, Curlington. K-I-R-L-I-N-G-T-O-N, like a butler version of myself. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So go follow us there and uh, we'll throw you a follow back and We'll continue chatting about movies. But enough movie chatter. We've got to quickly buzz through a schoolyard pick of celebrity couples. And these can be past or present couples. Or both. Or both. Definitely not future. Whenever we had the disaster stream, I said future. And then I was like, (laughs) I was like, hold on. Now that we can't have unless somebody, you know, made a deal with. Beelzebub and and can see what's coming, but um, no, no future couples. That's off limits. But Kirk, I am horrified to say that you actually get the first pick in, in this draft, which I'm scared because I have I have some of these couples I'm really emotionally attached to, and I feel like you're going to be thieving them off my board. Okay. So, best of luck to you. Schoolyard pick well, of celebrity couples. The first one I have is actually pretty controversial. Oh. I want to um, select it based on um, its level of fame and, and uh, just basically it being an iconic time in history. And sure. I don't want it to reflect what it, what we've actually unveiled about it now. Oh, I know what it is. Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake. Yeah, great one. It's that simple. You've got the, the denim outfit, the famous denim outfit. You have them just uh, – it, it, they had the – the world was just uh, watching every move they made. They were on the the revamped Disney uh, Mickey Mouse Club. They were teen sensations. They were. Uh, it was just perfect that the king and queen of pop at the time were just together and together for a long time. Uh, sad of all of the things that transpired afterwards, but strictly on how powerful that couple seemed at the time. That's why I got to go Brittany and Justin. Yeah. It's like when people say name a more iconic duo, I'll wait like that. That's one of those ones where it's like, you can't, uh, you right. know, like <laughs> iconic. Certainly there's nothing more iconic. Like that was, that was the pinnacle. That was the pinnacle of, of celebrity couples in the nineties and two thousands. Like that was it. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, Justin, you know, there's been stuff. We're not going to dig into all of that, but it, I totally agree with your point. And in fact, they were on my list for the exact same reason. Um, and there are other couples that we'll talk about that I, you know, that I've left off for similar similar reasons. But I, I would have definitely picked Justin and Brittany if if I had been given the chance. All right, my first pick. Um, this is so hard. It's like way harder than it should be because this is very <laughs> stupid. But I'm going with uh, Emily Blunt and John Krasinski. Emily yeah. Blunt and John Krasinski. Man, they are so lovable, those two. I, I just, I, I love John Krasinski in pretty much anything he's in. I feel similarly about Emily Blunt. I think they just have this, this like effervescence about them. You just feel warm and, and, and happy and 
you know, they're obviously lovely people and they've seemingly have a great relationship or great marriage. Um, I can't say enough good things about them. I, I am dying for them to do more movies together because I thought a quiet place was great with them. If, if we somehow miraculously get the fan casting fantastic four of Sue storm and Reed Richards, I will die that day. I will be deceased. I, my heart will explode <laughs> like the Grinch because they'll just, it will just be overflowing with love and happiness and warmth. Um, I, I love these two. I don't know them, but I do love them. And, and I wish that I was related to them in some way so that I could just be in their presence because it seems <laughs> like it would be awesome. And if, and, and if they ever get a divorce, that's one of those where you're like, love is not real. I hate everything. I, I don't want to be around anyone ever again. Right, right. There was a time, I think it was right before the pandemic when they did like a sweepstakes of like going out to dinner with them. Yes, they did. They did. Yeah. You're right. It was it was and, it was around the a quiet place. They were doing like some sort of charity thing, and they were promoting it alongside a quiet place. And yeah, uh, yeah you could like win like a double date with them. And I was like, yeah. oh my gosh, can you imagine? <laughs> I so would fun. be I would be putty. I wouldn't be able to say anything. I'd be worthless. <laughs> I'd it. be like the mute kid in in uh, Mystic River who wasn't actually a mute, but. You know, that's right <laughs> because I'm not actually a mute and, but I wouldn't be talking because I, you know, I would be so floored, but just anyway. mouth agape, like, yeah. Star shock. I love it. Um, so the next one is hard because, you know, Tom Cruise has been with a lot of high profile marriages. True. Um, I'm going to go with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. That's going to be gonna my. I was going to say, if you say Katie Holmes, I'm going to punch you through this camera. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, he was with Mimi Rogers, Nicole Kidman, Katie Holmes. Um, the list goes on, but those are those are the big ones. Uh, him and Nicole Kidman, what a power couple! You two of the most beautiful people on the face of this earth uh, came together and uh, had uh, just beautiful, beautiful children as well uh, between them. This this couple was, was just as powerful. You had, you had the music couple with Brittany and Justin. This was the movie couple. They, everything they touched turned to gold. They were on the cutting edge of storytelling at the time. And, uh, Tom Cruise was in every, uh, big franchise and, and big groundbreaking, uh, adaptation of novel, uh, to, to film version as well. And of course, Emission impossible top of his game, which catapulted them even farther top gun that the firm, the list goes on. You had two of the biggest movie stars that were together and for a long time, and they really controlled the business and controlled the roles that they accepted. So it's gotta be those two for me. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, Though I'm terrified of both of them, I have to say, just oh, yeah. on a personal level, I find them both very scary, and I would not be, I would not want to be um, Nicole Kidman, mostly just because she has potential to be very scary. I think just because she's a really good actor, and mm -hmm. so sometimes she scares me. And Tom Cruise, just because he's, you know, completely insane. Um, I think that's <laughs> that's hard for me. Though I watch, I've watched many. I watched Minority Report the other night. I've been oh. rewatching the Mission Impossible series. I think he's one of the best to ever do it. No doubt. Um, but that, that's a good pick. Safe to say, I guess, that Nicole Kidman and Keith Urban are not on your list then. They're not. Uh, <laughs> but I love them together as well, too. Okay, okay. Uh, you're, you're like, whatever. Just, you know, as long as Nicole Kidman's happy, uh, Kirk's happy. That's, that's yes. what matters. Okay. Um, man, this is tough. I'm going to go 
Dak Shepard and Kristen Bell for the next one. Um, I mean, that that pretty much speaks for itself, right? They they seem like lots of fun. They seem to have a great relationship. Um, you know, they've been very transparent about things going on in their lives. You know, for better or worse. I think I was really hoping that things wouldn't go bad, and and they really didn't. But you know, Dax admitted that he had a relapse on you know some drug addiction type stuff, and and they've worked through it together. And I thought that was like. You know, that's that's the double-sided coin of transparency is that when really serious, like, things happen in your life, you're also, you're kind of forced to be transparent about that too. But I think they handled it with grace and um, they're just, they seem like great people, really. And, like, like legitimately, I think that they're probably, like, down-to-earth nice people and would be great to, you know, kick it with. So, sorry Absolutely. I had to get, like, real with that. But I just feel like that exemplifies, like, who they are, you know, they were willing to talk about that. And like, they were going through that in a very public way. And, you know, I think that they're better for it. Like Dax has talked about it on his podcast. I think they're probably helping people by, by sharing their experience and being like, we're real people too. So, um, I thought that was actually pretty admirable. It's true. Uh, just like movies kind of mark time, uh, Dax and, and Kristen, they mark time as, uh, what they what they want to give back with their relationship is just brutal honesty, and they talk a lot about addiction, abuse. Uh, what a what a um, a marriage is not all sunshine and rainbows. And in, in in the time of also mental health, yeah, Kristen uh, Bell's uh, like a huge mental health advocate, which is great. Yeah, of 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 exposure and um, championing uh, that, and making sure people understand, like get in touch with them and themselves, and get the right help they need. Absolutely, like it's it's such a good choice. They were on my list. You, you took it from me, which that's fine. I, I'm, I'm I'm not mad at you, but I am upset with you. But I'm, but I'm just, just disappointed. In, yeah. <laughs> Let me na- manipulate you as we're talking about mental health. I think that's probably <laughs> the most positive thing I could do. <laughs> No, uh, I, I think that's a great, a fantastic choice. So I'm going to pick a couple that's still together now because I've picked two divorce Ooh. couples. <laughs> um, this one's weird and topical. So Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis. Yeah, the non-bathers. The non-bathers, the non-bathers. <laughs> uh, lots of controversy within the, their their relationship uh, because uh, Mila Kunis joined uh, that 70s show under the guise of that she was already 18 years old. No, she was much younger. She was much younger and too young to be playing out the, the, uh, the storylines on that show. And then she just stopped caring once she actually became uh, a legal adult uh, in America. Um, they're, they're fascinating. Their, their energy is crazy. They were together and then they weren't for a long time, but then they came back together and now they have a very successful family, successful career in, in film and in TV uh, and businesses. They've got a couple of businesses that they, that they support nonprofit and for profit. So they are, they they just they continue to surprise me. I kind of forget they're there. Then there's a Super Bowl Cheetos commercial, uh, and then and then they come out with this that they don't bathe. Only the the vitals is that what they say? Only the the most important uh, areas. Which I mean, we can all you know yeah, that guess conjures what those up are. all kinds of great imagery. Um, <laughs> Mostly on Ashton Kutcher's side, you're just thinking this like eight foot man washing only the most important parts of his body, and I'm like. Ah! didn't need to know that information yeah and why is it why is this even coming out you know what i mean like it's not news it's not news i don't know i hate that i know that they just did they just like start talking about like i don't understand like i saw the headlines and i was like 
you know what? I don't even care enough to click and learn more. Like I, I've, I've seen what I need to see there. And also like, why, you know, I, mm-hmm. I just, why, just why there's a reason we don't see, um, unless it's a comedy, we don't see, uh, actors go to the bathroom or ever talk about going to the bathroom. There's a reason for that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Um, my next pick, I am, oh man, why do I find this so difficult? I'm going to go Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn. That was mine. Oh, I'm sorry, Kirk. I'm that sorry. That was going to be my one. Um, they are not married, and they're just kind of, you know, they've been together, I think, 37 years or something like that. They've obviously uh, produced some other actors, you know, the Kate Hudsons of the world, Wyatt Russell, who was a star in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, among other things. They... Continue to be relationship goals. I I enjoy seeing them together. They, you know, have aged gracefully together, and they've stuck through it in an industry that is um, pretty intense on relationships in general. Especially if you're both working in that industry, we've we've seen enough um, relationships fall apart due to the pressures of Hollywood. You know, to know that, but they have stuck together and they've done it their own way, and I think that that's a uh, that's that's awesome, and, and credit to them, and they, and they seem happy and, and good, and they've got a lovely family, and good for them. So, Kurt Russell, Goldie Hawn, well done. Well, that's just frustrating. That was that was gonna be my actual next one. Oh, so no. how dare you? Oh no! How dare you? <laughs> and I waffled uh, on it too. It could have been, <laughs> it could have been another couple, Kirk. I'm so sorry. I mean, I I recently listened to um, Kate Hudson was on. Oh, um, what's his name? Uh, Rob Lowe's podcast chatting about uh, her parents and her and yeah. her family life. And it was just, just cool. Like they're the cool parents uh, of how Kurt yeah, Russell they took, seem it. They really seem it. They really do. Yeah. How, how she would just like the crazy parties that they would throw and that, that they were, uh, they're just like Kings of the castle in yeah. their neighborhood. And like, they have these epic Christmas parties and everyone comes over and, Ah, I just want to go. I just want to be invited to that Christmas party. Is really what it, it comes down awesome. to. So. It would be awesome. My next pick, I'm going to go Tom Hanks, Rita Wilson, yep. ladies and gentlemen. That's fair. You took one off my board. I think that's that's. We'll take that trade. Um, I mean, just beauty brains perfection on both of their both of their fronts. Um, you want to talk about like kind of more of a timeless, you know, Tom Cruise, and Nicole Kidman at the time at the height of not the height of their careers. Cause their careers are still just uh, exploding uh, everywhere you look, but uh, Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson, uh, just, just kind of that, the classic couple that continues to radiate um, just what, not old Hollywood, but timeless Hollywood in a way uh, that you just see them walk into a room and you're like, man, those are some great people. I'd really like to just continue to support their, their love and their marriage, which is exciting to see just to see that, that happiness. So Tom Hanks, Reed Wilson, you've got it. Yeah. They are like our, everyone's adopted parents. We all yeah. feel like we know them and we all feel like we know what the warmth of their embrace would feel like. You know, I think we just, we mm. just do. Um, it's a great pick. And that's why they were on my list as well. I've got, I've, I, you know, I'm down to my last two and I've got some tough choices to make. I'm going to go with heart over brain on a couple of these because at the end of the day, it's got to be heart. These are, these are celebrity couples. Um, I'm going Selena Gomez and Justin Bieber. And and just because that relationship and the ending of that relationship has spawned 
so many incredible songs. Um, <laughs> I am very thankful for their time together. I know that they were they were kids and it didn't end well. Um, you know, and, and and we thought they were still hung up on each other for a long time. And, and, and in a way, I think we all collectively hoped that they would end up together. And th- it wasn't in the cards. But, uh, I mean, there is always still time. You know, I know that Justin is, of course, married to Haley Bieber now. Um, but Justin and Selena, again, they have that star power that's just next level. Um, you know, they... they you know, they were budding stars together. This was like, this was sort of like almost like high school sweethearts. Of course, yes. they were both growing up in the limelight. So it was a little bit different, but again, the songs, the, the breakup songs, that spot, <laughs> I mean, it's just so great. It's just so, so excellent. I can't say uh, it enough. So that's, that, that's my pick. That's my fourth pick. I think, I think they're still holding back on some. And I think with oh, the least, uh, maybe they were too brutal for us to hear. Uh, we weren't, maybe we're not ready for them yet, but I still think, as the years go by, we will get, cause they were so critical to each other's growth in life uh, that I think that we will see that reflection later on too. So I think the songs are going to keep coming. Yeah. And I know, listen, I know that love yourself was written by Ed Sheeran and, and was probably a, a breakup song for him. Maybe it was him and Ellie Goulding in the same way that, um, dude, you know, maybe I should have picked them great songs coming from that as well. But you can still picture Justin singing Love Yourself about Selena and vice versa. And of course there were other songs that were written that were clearly about that. Just great. It's just great song material. uh, If nothing else. It is. Do I have one more? This is your last pick. Easy. Sarah Michelle Gellar, Freddie Prince Jr. Wow. Easy. I like it. In love since the nineties did. uh, I know what you did last summer together and they're all slew of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and every um, 90s rom-com included Mr. Freddie Prince Jr. Um, Whether it was with um, uh, Julia Stiles or with uh, She's All That, uh, Rachel Lee Cook, you know, there's this couple, I'm so glad they ended up together and I hope they stay together forever. You, you, if you glance in their life, just at a, uh, just at a, a quick scope in there into Sarah Michelle Geller's Instagram, you can sometimes see Freddie Prince Jr. Walking by like, Hey honey, I love you. You know, <laughs> like it's, it's very sweet. It's very wonderful. So those two win it for me. Yep. I like it. That's what I'm going to say to all your picks. I think that's what I've said up to everyone. I'm like, yep, love it. <laughs> I want you to respond with, no, I don't like that one. <laughs> I didn't know they were still together, to be quite honest with you. Yes. I had no idea. So good for them. I'm, I'm happy for them. They're, they're sort of like a time capsule for, for an, a bygone era, and, and that's great. Yes. Um, my final pit, my final, oh, Freudian slip there. <laughs> I'm going with Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston. I said my final pit instead of my final <laughs> pick. Um, there's still something there with these two, man. I know that, that Brangelina is no more. And again, everything that was old becomes new again. And I know, is is Jennifer Aniston, I'm so bad at all this stuff. Is she still with Justin Theroux? She. I uh, know, divorced after three, three or four so years. So are they divorced. both single? Mm-hmm. Let me cross-check Kirk. that. We get a live. What update. are they waiting for? We I, know the spark's still there. We saw it. I, I think it was at the Oscars. Whenever you know he won um, an Academy Award for for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and she was a presenter. And uh, or no, Jennifer Aniston won for something else. Did she win for? Was it the Globes? It was probably the Globes. It was the Globes for something. Yeah. She won <laughs> She won what. for something else, and there was that video of Brad Pitt watching her acceptance speech 
after he had just won and then they had for like best supporting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then they like held hands. It was just oh, a, the morning show. She went morning the morning show. The morning show. That's what it was. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it was just a beautiful thing. And everybody was like, oh man, there's still a spark there. And also both seem like good, good people. Brad Pitt is like known for being an, a you know, good guy in Hollywood, Midwestern uh, morals and, and upbringing and things like that. I, I don't know. I want it. I want it back. I want the feeling just, back. Just as uh, as uh, Ben and J Lo yes. got back together, even though I thought that Ben and Jennifer Garner were a better fit. Mm. It's fine, whatever. I won't. I won't continue. But I, I really feel like those two need to come back together. They Brad do. And, and they Jennifer do. Aniston. I mean, it would be electric. I would. I would love it. There's nothing I would love more, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on the celebrity couple front, except for maybe Justin and Selena, but I don't want to. Mm-hmm. I don't want to root for divorces. The fact that Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston are, you know, both Splitsville right now. This yes. feels like the time. This is the time. This is the time. Yes, and then the world will end because that's yes. you can't end on a higher note than that. That's true. That would be like the <laughs> the final exclamation point. Boom! It's over. Yeah, I like yes. that. Um, let's buzz through honorable mentions. I'm. I'll go. I'll go mine real quick. Okay. Sophie Turner and Joe Jonas. They here. Here's why they were honorable mentions. They seem really chill, but they also seem like they could be jerks. Uh, you know, I, I just like I can't totally tell. Like Sophie Turner seems cool. Joe Joe Jonas seems pretty cool. Sometimes they just had a kid. Congratulations to them. I've, it's probably been like a year now, uh, to be <laughs> honest, because uh, <laughs> this is how well I keep up with this stuff. But they seem like they could be cool. So on the off chance that they're really cool to chill with, uh, I'm down for that. Uh, Zendaya and Tom Holland, hot off the presses. They're very new, but that uh, I'm all for that. I couldn't be more for that. Emma Stone and Andrew Garfield, rest in peace to that relationship. That was incredible. Um, I loved that. And I know that they're, I, I'm sure they're both happy now, but they, that was great. Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. You know, that's just, that's classic Hollywood. I love classic Hollywood. Um, couple of controversial honorable mentions that I left off because of controversy. Jay-Z and Beyonce, because there's lots mm-hmm. of cheating rumors going on there. And even though I freaking love that couple so hard that they would normally be on my list, if there is alleged infidelity, I can't be a part of it because I just want them to be in love. And then that ruins the couple in a way. And I feel right. the same way about Will Smith and Jada Pinkett Smith, though we know, thanks to Red Table Talk, what happened there. So th- that's that's not even alleged infidelity. That's like, that's out there. Confirmed. So I had to leave both of those, those couples off, even though it, it hurts me. I had both of those on my honorable mention list. And with the asterisk that I don't believe that Beyonce and Jay-Z were actually uh, untrue to one another. I don't believe it. You don't? I think, it you think it's all just... They they had all those songs lined up and ready, and they yeah. had specials made. Like, who processes uh, infidelity with, look at me, lemonade? Yeah, <laughs> I could, I could buy that. Who does that? I think it was all PR stunt to revitalize their their strength as a power couple Man, in the so. 2010s. So, so, which because look at them now, like bringing bringing their own booze to all of this all, all of the award shows and yes. like sharing it with other tables, you know, pre-covid. I mean, that's just fantastic. <laughs> so, I really think there's there's was a PR stunt. Uh Will Smith, Jada Pinkett Smith, Will Smith, man. 
if if you weren't such a one i mean he's a wonderful man and he's he's a family man um you go back to all of his movie premieres and you see him bringing his kids in full wardrobe of what to reflect whatever movie he was going to um i mean he's just probably just got superpowers to to keep that marriage together uh tom cruise and katie holmes tom cruise and mimi rogers angelina jolie and brad pitt angelina jolie and billy bob thornton reese witherspoon and ryan felipe john lennon yoko ono and Bruce Willis and Demi Moore. All you have some people. truly horrible couples on your honorable mentions. You just mentioned some of the most notoriously awful couples ever. Like they were just like part of the group. I'm I'm, I'm horrified by this. John Lennon to- and Yoko Ono. Are you kidding me? Are you Can kidding you go back me? To what was the title of the schoolyard pick? Celebrity schoolyard pick of celebrity couples. Celebrity couples. It wasn't the most in love celebrity couples, you know? No, but it's like the best. We're trying to pick our favorites here. Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes. Angelina Jolie and Billy Bob Thornton. Are you kidding me, Kirk? Are you kidding me? I was going the route of, I took it a different direction of, these are the couples you know. Can do you remember them? Absolutely. Uh, you can't think of life or one without the other at some point in their life. Ugh, you disgust me. But, like you were fine until that. Like the <laughs> the the schoolyard, the honorable mentions really set it over. We should have just ended the episode, and we said we were going to get out of this episode quick, and this just became the longest episode like ever in history. If you're still yeah. listening, thank you so much for doing so. We love you guys. We're going to get out of here quick. Couple of quick things. I mentioned it earlier. Letterboxed. L e t t e r b o x d. It's an app. Download it. Create an account. It's for free. You can follow us, and we can talk more about movies on it. Discord. I know it sounds intimidating because it's like a new app, and when you click the link in our description, it's going to try to get you to download an app. Just do it. It's like Slack or Teams or Facebook Messenger. It's a really easy way to chat. If you need a movie recommendation at 2 a.m. on a Friday night, we're there for you. We'll get the notification. We'll we'll fire off a list, okay? We're all about it. There's a community on there that we're building. Join us. It's fun. Um, we're going to be bringing spilled popcorn back for, for what if I believe in a couple of weeks, our next movie review will be jungle cruise starring Emily Blunt and Dwayne Johnson. It will be available in theaters and on Disney plus with premiere access starting tomorrow, the day that this airs, uh, Friday, mm-hmm. July 30th. So check that one out so you can be in on the loop on the next one, but we've gone on for far too long. Let's get out of here. Kirk. Thank you for being here, my friend. As always, I want to give a special thank you to our executive producer, Ryan Spriggs. And our original music is by the band Rhetoric. Catch them on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Play, wherever. We will check with you guys next week. Talk to you then. Bye.